Amen. Wow. You guys glad you came to church today? Amen. Come on. Um, if you're wondering, you know, like maybe, maybe this is your first time at Antioch or maybe it's just a, a, been a while since you um, have been in like a holy moment, like we just experienced together. That's kind of what uh, we just passed through was like kind of a holy moment where Jesus was in his rightful place and we were in our rightful place worshiping him together. And um, the scripture in Psalm 1611 describes it like this. It says that um, in the presence of God, it's fullness of joy. So when we enter into this right place with God where he's high and lifted up on his throne and we're in our rightful place worshiping him, we come into alignment with God and we experience a part of his presence. He's a being, he's a person. And when he comes and when we sit in his presence, it is, the Bible says that is where our fullness of joy is found. And couldn't the world use a little bit more joy, guys? Couldn't we use a little bit more joy? I mean, we're all kind of running around, you know, looking for this fullness of joy and like trying to find it in every corner we can find it. And God's like, just come to me, you know? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and I, you will find your fullness of joy. And it's really powerful to be together in these moments. So I'm glad you're here um, my name is Chris. I'm the family's pastor. That was not my sermon this morning, but just kind of bringing us through the moment we went through together. Uh, for those of you that I haven't met yet, um, my wife and I, we've been a part of this church for about six or seven years now. Uh, my wife, Arlena, and I, we have four amazing, beautiful little kiddos. Uh, we've been on staff here at Antioch for about two and a half years. We love this church family. We love living in College Station. We love getting to be a part of what God is doing here, and uh, it is a joy to be in the flow with God because he's on the move and we get the invitation to jump in and be with him, right? And so um, before we jump in further to the message today, I want to invite, if you are a family or a young adult, uh, there's something really important I want to invite you to this upcoming Friday night at six o'clock right here in this room. We are having a family and young adult worship night. The Antioch worship team is going to be hosting us. It's just really the goal of this time is to create space for our families and young adults to get outside of the norm a little bit and to really just go into some of these holy moments together and to go a little bit deeper into the presence of God. Together, we're going to have child care for the kiddos. They're going to have a blast back there, and we're going to go for it in here 6 to 7. That's wrong. It's at 6 p.m., okay? 6 to 7, 30 p.m. Uh, grace upon grace, right? Everybody gets a few mistakes, all right? So, uh, 6 to 7.30 p.m. We would love for you to be here. We're believing it's going to be a re really powerful time together. So uh, we've been in a series on the book of Romans for uh, the last few weeks, and I get to pick it up this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4. You can flip there in a second, uh, or you can flip there now. As you do, though, I want to tell you a little bit about the, the kind of family legacy or, or the line of lawyers that I come from in the Pletcher family, okay? So my grandfather and my father were both these really successful, uh, almost in a way kind of famous Texas trial lawyers, okay? And so my whole life growing up, that's what my, I watched my forefathers do, right? My, they both went to Notre Dame. They both got, went, went off to law school, got this great education, and then they actually went into law practice together, and they practiced law. And growing up and watching them, there was a little bit, I was the firstborn son, right? So there's a little bit of this like, well, am I going to like, you know, go into the family business, right? Am I going to continue the legacy of 
Pletcher men, you know, go off to Notre Dame, get a good education, and go to law school, but become a lawyer. And uh, I I was a little bit leaning in that direction until the fall of 2000 when I came to College Station, Texas, and I sat in the third deck of Kyle Field and watched the Texas Aggies play Kansas State. The sun was setting over Kyle Field, and Jesus appeared to me. No, but (laughs) the, the Lord tugged on my heart in that moment and said, Chris, I want you to come here. I wasn't really even walking with God at that point, but I knew this is where I needed to come. So I came to Texas A&M University. Whoop. Class of 2005. I see Lima back there. I think he was 04. But uh, we basically, it was a powerful, powerful time at A&M. I come to A&M, and my first few weeks of college, God gets a hold of my life radically. I was not following God at all. Radically, I mean, like pulls me out of the frat house, like radically transformed my life. And in the process of learning to walk with him and follow with him, he calls me to be a pastor. And so it's amazing because my family members now, from my dad's side of my family, they've heard a couple of my sermons from time to time, and they always comment on how I sound like my grandfather and how I kind of got this legacy of speaking and whatever, public speech, speaking, persuasion, whatever, and it was passed down. It's been so cool to see how God has taken what he has given me through my forefathers, and he's using it now in his calling of my life. And I share that because the book of Romans is considered by many people to be one of the most brilliant pieces of literature ever written. It is a masterpiece of logic and persuasion, so much so that some law schools for many years would actually use the book of Romans as a textbook and as a case study in persuasion and argument. It's an amazing piece of literature, and it's got, it builds upon itself all throughout the book, and it's got doctrinal power, practical application, and so as we dive in here to week three, I want to recap a little bit where we've been, because our heart is that we would not just get a couple of nuggets from Romans along the way, but that we might actually see the breadth and width and the depth of what God is revealing through this book and really get some depth in us. Are you guys okay with that? So we kicked it off in Romans 1.16, where he introduces the great gospel of power. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is kind of the banner verse that hangs over this whole series for us. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. So he kicks off, he introduces the great gospel of power, the gospel of salvation, and then he spends the next two chapters, I mean really the the latter part of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and the beginning of chapter 3, explaining to us why all people everywhere are in need of this great gospel of power, why all people everywhere are in need of this great salvation. Because he goes to these great lengths to show us what the problem is. Because how many of you guys know you actually cannot address a problem and fix a problem if you don't know what the problem is? And so he shows us throughout these initial chapters of Romans that the problem that is corrupting the world, right? We can look throughout the world. We can look at our own lives and go, something is off here. There's a problem in our world. And he goes to great lengths to show us, guys, that we have a righteousness problem. Or or better said, we have an unrighteousness problem. And all of the misery and all of the mess and all of the brokenness in our own lives and in society is really just tied back to 
our sin and unrighteousness. And so if you grew up like me, not in the church, and by 14, 13 years old, you were like, yep, I'm a sinner. I, nobody needs to tell me that I have sin in my life. I am well aware. Thank you. Then Romans 1 was written to you. He kind of addresses like the obvious external sins, right? The, the bad people. By the end of Romans 1, you're like, wow, gross. And, you know, unless you're like me, you're like, oh, that's me. And so then you, you, you realize, wow, okay. I am rightly deserving the judgment of God. And then for the rest of us, maybe who didn't find ourselves in Romans 1, we kind of start turning our noses up. Oh, those bad people. He gets you in chapter 2. He's like, well, hey, 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 you guys who judge the bad people, you actually got the same stuff going on in your heart. And so you're without excuse also. So he gets all the really outwardly bad people in chapter 1, and then he gets all the really self-righteous, prideful Pharisees in chapter 2, and he lumps us all in. And by chapter 3, verse 19, he has shut down every argument, and he has proven why the whole world, all people everywhere, will be held accountable to a righteous creator. Will be held accountable. And right at the moment when we all realize that we deserve, actually, we deserve, because of our unrighteousness, the just judgment of God. He gives us the best news in all of history. And he unpacks for us, in chapter 3, verse 21, the great gospel of power. That the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from what you could work for, apart from what you could earn. The law and the prophets bear witness to it, but it's the righteousness of God through faith. Say that with me. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Tyler did a great job last week of unpacking these big theological terms of justification and redemption and propitiation, that even though in and of ourselves we are actually unrighteous before God because of our sin, that Jesus stepped forward into our place as our substitutionary sacrifice. That's what the word propitiation means. He stepped into the gap for us, and he received in our place the penalty for sin that we deserve. And because of his finished work on the cross, his redeeming work on the cross, we can be set free, and in a moment, by faith, we are justified in the sight of God. What does that mean? It means that he looks on us, even though he's taken three chapters to convince all of us that we're unrighteous apart from God, he takes one second to say the moment you step into Jesus, he looks on you as righteous. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's why we worship. That's why, you know, if you, whether you've come from a really outwardly sinful background like me or maybe a really outwardly self-righteous religious background, why we all come to the foot of the cross of Jesus and say, wow, you call me righteous now? I know I'm not. But you now look on me and you've redefined me through your grace. Do you know how much work Jesus did 
so that you could be righteous right now in this moment? Do you know how much work Jesus did on the cross so that you could simply receive and not work for it? And in chapter 4 this morning, we're going we're gonna to unpack and kind of continue to expand this idea of righteousness. Is faith alone really enough to count me righteous in the eyes of God? Is it really? Because I think we, a lot of us know that, but practically I look around and I, feel, I still feel like a lot of us are kind of spinning our wheels trying to like prove ourselves before God and work up our own righteous standing before him. And so I think we need a refresher here in chapter 4. This morning we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Are you guys with me on the recap? Have you come with me here to chapter 4? Okay, so he says, it's amazing. He unpacks the gospel of power. He says, hey, guys, actually, this whole thing hinges on one thing. It's called faith. He says, well, I should give these guys an example of what faith looks like. Who can I use? Well, why don't I use the very first guy, Abraham? Let me pull this guy out, the father of this whole deal, and let me show everyone why faith alone counts you righteous in the eyes of God. He says this, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Did you hear the word count in there about five different times? Counted, counted, he believed in God and righteousness was counted to him. So this word, I didn't grow up to become attorney. I actually came to A&M and ended up in the business school and got my degree in accounting, okay? And so this passage is right up my alley because this term, we got some accountants in the, word, in the room? Come on. All right. Praise God. Everybody else? Hey, good luck understanding this one, but I'm totally kidding. It's so simple, okay? Because you all have a checkbook. You all have a bank account, right? This word count is just an accounting term. It's an accounting, think debits and credits, okay? And the quote comes from Genesis 15. And I want to I step into Genesis just for a moment because this is so powerful, guys. In Genesis 15, we see this quote, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, okay? But in Genesis 12, we actually have the powerful moment where God speaks to Abraham and calls him to leave his father's country. You guys are probably familiar with this. He says, I want you to leave the land of your fathers. This is Genesis 12. And Abraham, in this radical act of obedience, he obeys God and he leaves the land of his forefathers. And guess what? In chapter 12, it says nothing about this radical act of obedience being counted to him as righteousness. Nothing. In Genesis 15, though, a few chapters later, Abraham's camping out. He's on the way. He's obeyed. He's going. He's leaving his father's country. God pulls him out of his tent. They have this father moment. Father God pulls him out of the tent in Genesis 15, and he says, Abraham, 
Look at the stars in the sky, my son. Look at the stars in the sky. Now, I know you don't have any kids right now, and I know that your wife is barren and that you're about 100 years old, but Abraham, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And they have this holy moment with Abraham and God where the father just makes this promise to him, this impossible promise to him. And this is where we get this phrase. And in that moment, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In that moment, he believes in the word of God. He believes in the spoken promise of God and was justified by faith in the eyes of God. He was counted righteous. So this accounting term, it's like we all have more debt than we could ever repay. You know what I'm saying? We're like, imagine you've got 500 grand of credit card debt. You know, you could never just like go to work and get out of that thing. You know, you're going to be working a lot longer than you have days to live. Okay? And so this accounting term means we were all so far in debt in our unrighteousness. And the moment that Jesus hung on the cross, actually all of that debt was attributed to him. And in a second, he transferred all of his righteousness to your account that when you said, Jesus, I believe in you. The second that you place your faith in Jesus, he cancels out all your debt. But he doesn't just bring your account to zero. He actually fills your account with his righteousness. So God, when you stand before God and Jesus, he doesn't just say, okay, cool, you're at neutral now. Try again. He actually cancels all your debt and gives you all the righteousness of Jesus. This is justification by faith. This is what wrecks us on the inside and rearranges our identity. It's because the second we come to Jesus, God has already given us everything we ever need. In a moment, he calls us righteous. You see, the radical act of obedience in Genesis 12 did not justify Abraham in God's sight. It was the radical act of faith with his father. God, I believe that you're going to do what you said you were going to do. And in a moment, he was justified. And so he goes here in verse 4 and 5, and he starts talking about the difference between a wage and a gift. A wage and a gift, right? And this is obvious for us, right? How many of you guys go and you work part-time somewhere? You punch a clock, you work 10, 15, 24, 40 hours a week or whatever. You get a paycheck based on the hours that you work, right? How many of you guys, when you get the paycheck from your boss, you run to your boss and you're like, thank you so much, you're so generous. Oh, I just love working here. <laughs> Zero, because you worked for that money, man. Didn't you? You earned it. We earn a wage, right? But we receive a gift. We receive a gift. It's free, right? And so it's interesting that later in Romans 6, Paul will say, hey, the wages of sin is death. So actually what you all deserve and what you all earn on the account of your lives is death and judgment. But the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. This is gospel 101, that God gives it to us freely. And why am I driving this point home this morning? It's a good point. It's the gospel, guys. This is the good news of Jesus. And the reason we're driving it home is because believing in the word of God, which who does the New Testament say the word became, who's the word of God? It's Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And in a second, we are made righteous in his sight. 
This is the gospel. And I'm driving this point home for us because some of us are striving. We are spinning our wheels still in a works-based religious system trying to earn from God what he's already given us for free. And it's time that we stop this works-based striving and realize that God has already called us righteous. And if we will get there and start there, man, I bet our works would explode. If we would realize that we've already been justified and loved and redeemed and accepted and made pure and holy and all the stuff that Jesus died to give us, it's already ours the second we place our faith and say, God, I believe you. I believe you. When we try to prove ourselves to God, when we try to strive for something he's already given us for free, it's actually offensive to God because he's already, I mean, Jesus, we just celebrated Good Friday He hung on the cross and bled and died to like give it all as a gift, to give it all as a gift. And yet we're still spinning our wheels. And so today, I think some of us are going to stop spinning our wheels. And when we respond later, it's like, man, okay, Chris, you're right. I I thought I was, you know, free grace in this, but I've really been spinning my wheels trying to work for it still. And I'm ready to jump off that train today and rest You see, when you get out of this works-based religion, it actually moves you out of a place of self-condemnation and into a place of gratitude, okay? Because listen, when when you, a gift, what happens? It's your birthday, your friend gives you a gift, or it's Christmas morning, your parents, they give you a gift. Why do they give you a gift? They give you a gift because they love you, right? You didn't punch a clock for it. You don't have to pay them back for it. You get to receive it, and you receive a gift, and what do you say? Thank you. This is awesome. You love me so much. You'd give me this for free. I bet this cost you at least $17, and now you just gave it to me, you know? It's a, but Jesus, it costs his whole life, right? And we receive this gift. When we can see that our salvation is a gift, we actually get to live in the gratitude that we all are wanting to live in, but we're stuck because we're actually, most of us, still living in this works-based place, which leaves you constantly feeling self-condemned, constantly feeling like a failure. And so we're walking around, man, I'm just not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. We're all like kind of bitter. I'm not saying all of us, but some of us, this is me, okay? We just need to get over into the gratitude place to realize, man, it's all a gift through Jesus. Okay. So then if, why, the second question here is, why is it all about faith? Why did God choose faith to be like the vehicle of this whole thing, okay? Pick it up in uh, verse 16 with me. Are you guys okay? Am I freaking out too much this morning? Are we good? Okay. So... It all depends on faith. Guys, isn't it awesome when the Bible just spells it out for you? Like, it's like you have this great question, and the Bible's like, well, let me tell you. It's really simple. Okay? This is why it all depends on faith. It's amazing. Verse 16, this is why it all depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all the offspring of Abraham. Isn't that awesome? See, let me try to build this. I tried to explain this to somebody, and they looked at me like, whoa, I don't know what you're talking about. So, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts to grasp this truth today, okay? Why does it depend on faith? Because when it depends on faith, everything rests on the grace of God, not your work, not your effort. When it depends on faith, everything rests on the goodness and the love of God, right? So when you enter into the realm of faith, which rests on grace, then all of the promises of God become guaranteed.
guaranteed in a second. Why? Because they rest on the grace of God and not on your effort and works and striving. You see what I'm saying? Some of us are looking at all the promises in the Bible and practically, functionally, we're still going, well, I'm not sure if I'm good enough for that one to apply to me. Or I'm not sure if I'm holy enough for that. You know what I'm saying? The promises, though, actually don't rest. Here's the option. Here's the alternative, right? It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, or it depends on your works and the promises rest on the law, right? You see what I'm saying? Your ability to keep a law. But that's not what he says. Jesus is given all as a gift. It's all by faith, so that all rests on grace, so all the promises are guaranteed. Let me give you an illustration. Some of y'all are like, what? So here's an illustration, okay? My wife and I, we follow Jesus. We love Jesus. We live in the realm of faith where we believe that everything God has spoken in his word and everything that he speaks by his spirit is true and that we can bank on it, okay? And so a couple of years ago, uh, <clears throat> we have four kids, three of them are boys, and they're growing rapidly. And five, five or six years ago, we built this house that has four bedrooms. And I'm looking at this house, it was empty, we had zero kids. I'm like, man, we're going to live here forever. And then within four years, we had four kids, and three of them are boys. They're scaling the top of our trees, climbing over the fences already. It's like they have flown the coop, you know, in a very short period of time. And so we start dreaming, and God has started calling us to be in College Station for long term. And he kind of puts our eyes on this piece of land in South College Station, going, well, we're going to be here long term. What if we could get a piece of land, eventually build a house, a little bit more room for the boys to run around and grow up? We're going to be here. It's like we're putting our roots down. And as I'm spending time in the Word, I start seeing all these verses in Psalms. God's highlighting the Word, all these verses about inheriting the land. I'm like, okay, all right, God, are we going to inherit the land? I'm just noticing in the Word of God, we're going to inherit the land. And so I start to believe that I'm pretty sure God is saying that he's going to give us this piece of land because we can't afford it. I'm like flat out, there's like not enough money in the bank, not even close for us to buy this piece of land. And so when the opportunity came up to like basically put our name on the lot, we were like, let's do it. We don't have any money, but let's go. So we put our name on the lot, okay? But they, they hadn't, like, actually carved in the roads to this place yet, so the contract, there's all this real estate stuff. The contract actually doesn't go into effect until the roads are there. And so we put our name on this lot. We didn't have money. Like, a year goes by. We've paid zero dollars. They haven't carved the roads in, and we're just like, well, and we still don't have any money. And actually, in the process of that year, the little bit of money that we did have, kind of this nest egg that we had for the future, so to speak, God called us to give it away. He called us to give away our nest egg, okay? We had this stock account that my dad set up years ago, and it was kind of going to hopefully be our nest egg one day. And God called us to give it away for a dream that he was stirring up here in our community. And um, we said, well, he's told us that we're going to inherit the land, we think. And, but if we look at the word of God, there's so many other promises that, man, we can... God, we can't outgive God, you know? Like, there's so many scriptures that if, if we trust him, it's coming back, you know? And so we said, we're, we're going to obey. And we gave away our nest egg. We gave it away. And the year comes, uh, the, the time comes around, and they cut in the roads, okay? And the bank calls and said, all right, you guys got 30 days to decide if you want to, you know, buy this land, and we still don't have any money. And so I wake up. The morning of like decision time, and I'm like, well, we got to walk away from this deal. I'm not going to like 
you know, throw, it's like impossible, we can't do this. We're with my parents down in the Houston area for the weekend, I wake up in the morning and I have this realization, like I need to call them and tell them, hey, cancel the contract, we're walking away. And I walk downstairs, and my dad's, you know, cooking breakfast, and we're staying there with them for the weekend, and he goes, um, and I love my dad, he's amazing, he's not a follower of Jesus. And we've kind of like butt heads a little bit over the years about this, right? But we walk down and he goes, he goes, hey man, um, are you guys still thinking about that piece of land? I kind of heard y'all talk about it a couple times. I was like, yeah, yeah, we were looking at it, but we just can't afford it. So I actually just got off the phone with the banker, and we're going to have to walk away. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Actually, before you do, your stepmom and I were thinking that we wanted to help you guys out a little bit. Okay, we just kind of want to invest in your future a little bit. Sort of think about it like this. We just kind of want to give you like an early inheritance. And my dad, I said, wow, that's really generous. I'm thinking like a few thousand dollars or something, right? And I say, well, cool, dad. Well, what amount were you guys thinking, you know, because I'm crunching the numbers. I'll see if it's going to work out. And the number that came out of his mouth, guys, was five times the amount of the nest egg that we gave away. Five times. And it was equal to almost 50% of the price of the lot. And we were able to go and buy this, well, we were able to give some of it away, right? Because let's keep it going. Actually, that's a whole other story. Okay, my dad, <laughs> I got to go there. My dad gives us this amount of money, okay? And we go, well, we got to tithe off it. We got to give a tenth of it. So we calculate the tenth, and we're like, okay, man, this is a pretty decent chunk of cash we get to give somebody. And we're here at Antioch on a Sunday morning, and we're sending out one of our missionaries to the Middle East. And we're praying around him. And right after I put my arm, I go, hey, how's your support raising going? And he goes, well, I'm trying to leave. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow, but I still need X amount of dollars. And it was to the dollar, the amount of money that we were trying to give away. And I got to walk out with him and say, bro, you're fully funded. It's coming to you right now. Isn't that ridiculous? So all that to say, all that to say, okay, we inherit this, we inherit this lot. We inherit this lot. It was insane. But here's the deal. There was really a moment in this journey, and we're going to unpack the rest of this here, where we had to, we really had to choose between believing in what God had said, right, or what the Bible calls here wavering in our faith. That was, that's a real moment for all of us. It's a real moment to choose, am I going to believe what the Word of God says, or am I going to waver in our faith? And so look here in verse 18, and we see it in Abraham. He says here, in hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring breathe. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, say that with me, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, past tense, what he had promised. That is why, that is why his faith was counted, here we go again, 
That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Guys, this isn't just a story about Abraham, but for ours also. For it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Guys, here are the two roads we can take when we come up to the promise of God in our lives, okay? And I want to be clear. We've got a book full of the promises of God, right? He's already spoken. This thing is chock full of promises. We also have the Spirit of God that's working in our midst, and the Spirit of God actually will release new kind of promises right over our lives. He's not rewriting the Bible, but he's speaking in line with the heart of God, and he's putting new dreams or destinies or promises, and we get to choose two roads. This is a real choice. We get to choose to, like Abraham, consider the evidence. When he considered, oh, I'm 100 years old. Wow, that's old. Uh, my wife's barren. He's considering the earthly natural circumstances. And those earthly natural circumstances provide a really very real opportunity for him to waver in faith, to weaken in unbelief. But he chose not to waver in sight of the earthly evidence. Instead, it says this, he started to glorify God. He started to glorify God. And as he glorified God, it strengthened his faith. He glorified God. He worshiped God. I don't know what that word all entails, but he started to glorify God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And he landed over here fully convinced that God could do everything that he said he could do. Faith means that we are fully convinced he's able to do what he said he could do. And the righteous live by faith. That's the whole point of the book of Romans. The righteous live by faith. You see, and the, the Psalms actually say like this, that the righteous are as bold as a lion. You see Abraham standing fully convinced, this man of faith, and this was, it, faith put this righteousness in him, and it made him bold as a lion to step out. And he became the father of many nations. He became the father of the people of God. He stepped out in faith on the word that God had spoken, a word that he had spoken even in the midst of impossible, seemingly impossible, natural realm circumstances. Are you still with me? Verse 18, as he had been told. As he had been told. As he had been. Guys, God's already spoken. He's spoken a book full of promises. And he is speaking new promises, callings, identities. And today, the invitation is, will we be a people? Will we be a people that will rise up? that we would let faith, that we would glorify God and we would let faith arise and become fully convinced that God is able to do everything that he said he could do. Church, will you go with me this morning? Will you go with us this morning and saying, we don't want to have anything to do with this unwavering, wobbly faith. Man, if it's in the book, we're hanging our whole lives on this thing, right? If God has said it, he's going to do it. Do you see? We actually get to choose, guys, in the moment, to look at the natural circumstances and waver, or to look at God and become fully convinced. Won't y'all stand with me this morning?
as we close together. So God has spoken promises. Have our prayer team go ahead and come up here, some life group leaders, section leaders. As we respond this morning, I feel like there's really two main invitations in the room, and, and, I, and I hope that it will become really clear by the Spirit of God kind of how you need to respond today personally. And I would just encourage you guys, every time that we gather together as a people of God, there's an invitation from God on every single one of us to respond to something. So you might respond by just sitting in your chair and talking to God or journaling something out, or you might respond by coming down here and saying, hey, man, what he said really struck a chord with me, and so will you pray for me because I need to help believe. But wherever you are this morning, there's a response for every single one of us because God is speaking. God is speaking, and his word is always an invitation. It's always an invitation to believe in him more. And so if you're here this morning and listening, there's probably two main responses. One is kind of this like works-based thing. Like when I was sharing that earlier about, man, I'm like stuck on the treadmill. I'm still trying to earn something that God's already given me. If you're like worn out on the treadmill, like the treadmill race of trying to earn the approval of God when he's already gave it to you the second you said yes to Jesus, then man, I want, you to, I want you to throw that junk off this morning. And I want you to come down and say, man, I need to get rid of this works-based deal because I believe in Jesus. And he says, I'm already righteous and redeemed. So can we start over from there? If you need to get rescued from this works-based, corrupt gospel junk, get up here, please, and get free. Because the power of the gospel is enough to make you righteous in a second of faith. For the rest of us, though, oh, I feel like God is calling us out of this unwavering faith place, guys, into this fully convinced. And I don't know what that looks like for your life. It might look like there's actually a promise in the word that you're like having a hard time believing. If you're honest, you're like, yeah, I just, I've heard other people talk about that. I'm not really experiencing that one right now. I don't know if I believe that that promise is true. That's a lie. Because every spoken word of God is true. He's not able to lie. So if it's in here, it's in his word, then it is true. And there might be an invitation for you today to say, hey, I'm going to reclaim that promise. For some of you, though, it might be something that God has spoken over your life. That God has said, hey, he's put this dream in your heart. He called you like Abraham. Hey, leave the land of your fathers into something radical that I'm calling you to do. He's spoken something by his spirit. You've been given a word or some leading by the spirit. And he's saying, leave the land of your fathers and go because look, I know that you're not married yet or I know you don't have any kids yet or I know you're stuck in this career, but what I said is true and do not waver on my words. God is, re- God is helping us this morning to reclaim his promises and to reclaim his dreams for our lives. And there are some of you just like me at times that have been wavering of what God has spoken in my life and we're going to be done with that this morning and you're going to get it back because God has something powerful for every single one of you that he wants to release in and through your life. Amen? I invite you to respond this morning to whatever God is doing in your heart. I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and lead us and move us. Jesus, 
We want to be people that live fully convinced that you are who you say you are, God. That every word that you have spoken is true and that we can, we can root our whole lives on it. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So would you just, Lord, would you just move our hearts, Lord, whatever way we need to be moved this morning? Would you let faith arise? If you need to respond and get set free from workspace religion, come up here. Let us pray. If you need to just reclaim a dream or a promise from God over your life, today's your day to get it back, to reject wavering faith and to step in fully convinced. Lord, would you move in our hearts in this time, we pray in Jesus' name.